Well, good morning. I am always grateful when Jamie will trust this pulpit to me, because that's always at great risk, but he is a trusting man. I, um, I came out of the 60s. I say that not just to admit that I'm old, but it was a tumultuous time. You know, basically, we were divided in Southern California. Half of us loved the Beach Boys, the other half the Beatles. Didn't have a lot of country western folks, not in L.A., at least downtown. But I remember at that particular time, the uh, term counterculture was coined. The reason was because most of us growing up in the 60s, we weren't really happy with the culture that had been handed down to us. I mean, uh, others of us, we were just not too sure that there's got to be something better than what was handed down to us. And so some made love. Some made war, some just dropped out, the rest of us were just confused on how do we counter a culture that is so different from the one that we really want to embrace. And so we would whine about government and about politics and the media, <laughs> much like we do today, not a lot has changed, but then we'd begin to think about what we're countering, counterculture. Whining about the culture. We don't like the culture. And we begin to really consider the fact that, what is the culture anyway? I mean, it's like an ocean. And you can't really change an ocean. can't really change a culture, can you? But on the other hand, is not an ocean made up of millions and millions and millions of drops of water? And there's not one drop that, of water that is more powerful than another drop of water. And how culture is, is, is established is the predominant number of water drops basically establishes what that culture is going to be like. A whole lot of personal cultures all coming together. And then the majority of them becomes the predominant one. And, and, and if enough drops, I guess, change, then the ocean changes. The culture changes. Now, 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 now stay with me. Every one of us, we have a personal culture. That is, that no one can really tell us what is important to us, what we value. And then hopefully we're not hypocrites that we attempt to live out what we value, we live out what's important to us. But what do you do when the predominant culture happens to be antagonistic to your own personal culture? There's a lot more unsympathetic drops out there than sympathetic ones to our personal culture. And so I guess the question comes up, how do you survive in a culture that is so antagonistic to our own because it is antagonistic to God? Maybe the right question isn't how do we survive it. Maybe it's the fact that we realize our drop is just as powerful as any other drop. But how does one drop affect an ocean? Actually, only by affecting other drops, I would guess. In other words, how do we counter a culture that's anti-God? Welcome to history. And welcome to History 101 this morning. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. I think Jamie had set up this whole schedule so that chapter 5 would fall with me. Thank you, Jamie. You know, we're studying about men who did more uh, individual drops of water in a culture who, 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 who basically did more than survive. They actually influenced the drops around them. 
But they trusted God to change the culture, to change the, the ocean. But they did not let the ocean distract them from their drops. From the potency of their personal drop. That is, their personal cultures. I'm talking about men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Here in chapter 5, in his panoramic view of history, we're introduced to another character named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is about, he's just a drop influencing a whole lot of drops in the ocean of the culture of the Babylonian Empire. But he's going to be really influenced by another drop of water named, named Daniel. And it happened at a feast. Look at verse 1 of Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Chapter 5 is an account of the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Remember the Babylonian Empire. Back in chapter 2, that was the head of gold on the statue. That was probably the largest, most powerful empire around the known world that was defining itself as how can a man rule their own lives without God? How can there be a kingdom that would be known that has nothing to do with God ruling? So we're moving down the statue here from the head of gold to the shoulders of silver. That is the next attempt for man to try to rule himself, establish a culture that does not depend on God. And it's the Medo-Persian Empire, the silver shoulders of this statue. This is an end of an era. The Babylonian culture has weakened itself. The Babylonian Empire, this remarkable, powerful, world-renowned empire, culture, has weakened itself. And it's coming to an end under this man named Belshazzar. Now who is Belshazzar? What happened to Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 4? Well, archaeology is going to help us here a bit because we are now 70 years later has passed since Daniel first, back in chapter 1, uh, was introduced to this book. That is, actually wrote the book. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel? They were in Jerusalem, and they were invaded by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and they were kidnapped, exiled all the way to Babylon. It's now been 70 years since they've been taken captive. Daniel's in his 80s. He's an old man at this time, and he's been faithful to his drop, his personal culture without compromise for these some, what, 70 years. Now, Daniel doesn't record anything between the death of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. It has been 23 years between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. After reigning 43 years, he dies in the year 562 B.C. We know that because of history. That's interesting. Like I said, Daniel doesn't record anything between chapters 4 and 5, 23 years. So we don't know what happens, but we do because history helps out. I read in history that after Nebuchadnezzar died, the empire began to decline. He was followed by his own son, Evil Merak Dak. He only reigned for two years, then he was assassinated. And he was assassinated by his brother-in-law who served for four years, and then his name was Nergal-Sar-Azir. And when he died, he was succeeded by his young son, Labeshi-Marduk. Sound like the name of a big dog. 
And he, but he only reigned for nine months because he was beaten to death. <laughs> you think politics is rough here. Well, one of the conspirators that beat to death the big dog basically appointed this man named Nebonitus to be king over Babylon. So Nebonitus uh, reigned for 17 years. And it would be Nebonidus who finally would be defeated by Cyrus, the great king who brought the Medes and the Persians together into one powerful force, the Medo-Persian Empire. Stay with me. Now when Nebonidus was appointed king of Babylon by this conspirator who beat up the dog, he was not related to Nebuchadnezzar. This is a problem. Because if you're going to rule over Babylon, you've got to be in the royal family line. So he finds either a widow, one of the widows of Nebuchadnezzar, or one of the daughters of Nebuchadnezzar, and marries her. And because of the uh, Arabic, we don't know for sure if it was a widow, Nebuchadnezzar's wife, or it was one of his daughters. Either way, the fact is, now Nebuchadnezzar is in the family royal line. Well, this woman, this this widow, or this uh, daughter, has a son and the son's name is, take a wild guess, Belshazzar. So Belshazzar, this is either Nebuchadnezzar's son or his grandson, we're not sure. Well, Nebuchadnezzar adopts him as his own. And so he then moves, Nebuchadnezzar moves his capital down to the center of the Arabian desert, where it's real safe in the desert, a place called Timah. But he leaves Belshazzar, his adopted son, to co-rule with him up there in the city of Babylon itself. Fourteen years, Nebuchadnezzar will rule of his 17 down in Tima, and he'll leave the rest as a co-regency to Belshazzar there in the city of Babylon. Now Cyrus, who's the king of the Medes and the Persians, he's expanding his kingdom. He's just eaten up on the Roman Empire. And Cyrus will meet Nebuchadnezzar and his forces outside of the city of Babylon. And Cyrus just beats the spit out of them. And he goes ahead and takes uh, Nebuchadnezzar captive. And all of this happens as we approach chapter 5. So now as we begin chapter 5, the Medes and the Persians literally are outside the gates. They're surrounding the city of Babylon. They've been laying siege to the city for months at this time. And so Belshazzar in the city is under siege and he's having a what? He's having a party. And either the guy's really thick in the head or it's kind of a last hurrah. He believes, he's convinced he's invincible. The reason is, remember the city of Babylon was 15 miles square and surrounded by walls? The walls were 350 feet high, 87 feet thick. You didn't get through those walls. And so he's having a party because there's no way Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire can ever get into that city. So at this party, he invites all those nobles, and they're having this great wine fest, verses 2 to 4. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver... That Nebuchadnezzar, his father or grandfather, the Hebrew can go either way, has taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. This is 70 years ago. When they took the royal, the, the instruments of worship uh, from the temple there in Jerusalem, 70 years before, he brings them out. That the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. 
This is mockery of God himself. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from, in, from them. So they drank wine, praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, stone. You see, they're making a joke of God. And notice, they bring these vessels and the very things used to worship God, they use for a party. How much of this culture is God going to put up with? Well, there was a writing. Look at verse 5 to 9. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. <laughs> That's kind of an understatement. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be, note this, the third ruler of the kingdom. Why could he only promise the third ruler of the kingdom? Because his adopted father, Nebuchadnezzar, he thinks is still ruling in Tima. He's got the second position. He can only offer the third position here. Well, then all the king's wise men all came in and couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together. I'm sorry, my mind went a little off there. Then all the kings and wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Well, the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changes again, and his lords were perplexed. Now, when he, all of a sudden, there's this human hand seen floating, and it's over the head of Belshazzar. Notice it says it was opposite the lampstand. This is where the king sat. So the king is sitting there sipping wine, and over his head on the plaster, there is a writing instrument with a hand, and it begins to write this Aramaic sentence. I mean, talk, if that will not cause you to wet your tunic, I don't know what will. <laughs> Everyone sobers up quickly. Terror takes over. Belshazzar goes to apoplex, and his legs give out. And he calls for his spiritual advisors, his spiritual brain trust. And yeah, they were a lot of help for his father or grandfather. Remember back in chapter 2 when he had the other thing, the dream, and no one could figure that one out? And uh, Daniel saved their Nagahite at that time. He's going to save it again here. So he calls his advisors, and they don't have a clue. Belshazzar was hoping they could figure out what was going on. And when he realizes that they can't, panic sets in again. Verses 10 to 12. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom uh, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. At least that was her perspective. In the days of your father or grandfather, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. Remember, he's a water drop that never lost his influence. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father or grandfather, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. 
Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in Daniel, whom his, the king called, named him Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. This is most likely the queen mother. Queen mother shows up. She's concerned about her son changing different colors here. And she says, relax, there is a man. And he has the spirit of the holy gods. That was her perspective. It's interesting. She remembers the exact phrase. Either her father uh, or, 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 or husband used to describe Daniel. This Daniel, man of wisdom. Daniel never backs off from being who he was. His particular little drop of water at least his drop of water was going to continue to be as pure and as clear. He never was absorbed into their culture. And now he steps forward because he's called. Well, an explanation is given. Verse 13 to 16. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. King answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, yeah, just right from your mother you have. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters who have been brought in before me to read this writing make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have learned from my mother that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. This is really going to impress Daniel. Daniel's not really interested in being part of a doomed kingdom anyway. What happens is he's saying, I've heard about you, and I want you to know, can you, can you interpret this? Well, Daniel's going to give him a little history lesson, a little bit of a context before he explains and interprets the writing on the wall. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king! Notice he doesn't do what the mother does. Notice what it says in verse 10. O king, live forever! Daniel just says, O king! Because he knows this guy's a dead man. O king, most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, our grandfather, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. He got it from the hand of God. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Remember back in chapter 4? He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was, became like the mind of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. This guy was humiliated. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God, El Elyon, rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over whom He will. And you, His son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. 
and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, stone, which, which do not even see or hear. How dumb are you? But the God in whose hand is your breath, who are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. Daniel gives us history. He says, Belshazzar, if you learned anything from your father or grandfather, is that God's patience runs out. There's a point that God will only take so much antagonism from a culture before he will change the ocean. He will move. Daniel chapter 2 says God places kings, removes kings. Places kings, removes kings. God takes care of changing culture. God takes care of changing the ocean. And this one is just about to dry up. And God's going to deal with this one. He says, don't you know that God came down on Nebuchadnezzar and he came down hard because of his arrogance? You should have gotten the point by now, Belshazzar. God will not continue to be ignored. Remember Genesis chapter 6, verse 3? When God says, you know, I will not always, I will not always strive with the antagonism and the pride of men. And remember, he washed this earth one time by a flood. And here that flood of judgment is going to fall on Babylon. Well, notice verse 25. And now he's going to do the interpretation. This is the writing which was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, eupharsin, or anparsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now the language that this hand writes on the plaster of the wall above the head of the king is Aramaic. And mene means numbered. And he doubles it, mene, mene, to for emphasis. It's much like our vernacular, your number is up. Tekel means to be weighed and to be found too light. So you've been weighed your culture has been weighed, and your culture has been found wanting too light. Now, some are confused. Notice it says, and parson. Some translation says, you farson. See, but then it says, perez. Perez sounds different than farson or you farson. Not really. It, it's an Aramaic grammar deal. You is a conjunction. Just simply means and. And the I-N at the end is simply like our S. It means plural. The consonants are the issue. And the consonants of P-R-S, it's the same word, just a different grammar, grammatical form. And what it means is divided. Your kingdom has been divided between the Medes and the Persians. In other words, the interpretation is numbered, numbered, too light, divided. In other words, you're in deep mud. Reality begins to set in on Belshazzar. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and chain of gold, was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. 
I'm sure Daniel's really interested in this. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. You talk about God's sovereignty in history, secular history as well as biblical history. While Daniel is explaining the interpretation of this description on the wall of the palace, at the same time, Herodias, who is an ancient historian, tells us what's going on at the exact same time outside the walls. The Medes and the Persians, what are they doing while, while Belshazzar is having his feast? We actually know the date. It's the 16th of Tishri. 539 B.C., that's around October. And that night, Herodias tells us, that night, the same night as this party by Belshazzar, the Medo-Persian forces diverted the Euphrates River. Now you go, who cares? <laughs> no. The Euphrates River ran under these thick 87-foot thick walls through the center of the city of Babylon. By diverting the Euphrates River, they made it so that some of the forces of the Medo-Persian Empire could wade underneath the walls, come out the other side, open the gates, and there was a devastating attack that night, and that night they executed Belshazzar. And later Darius, who was like the great-grand-nephew of Cyrus the Great, who led this devastation, the kingdom ends up with Darius, the great-grandnephew, at another time when he's 63 years of age. Well, wasn't that fun? <laughs> but what do you walk away? What, what is this sovereign God over history and culture? This was a culture... The Babylonian culture defined itself as not needing God. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Oh, yeah. I wake up every morning so ticked. I listen to the news. I read the paper. We have a culture that's anti-God. We're, we're worse than the Babylonians. And your heart gets kind of pumping. And then you're kind of in a bad mood all day. And anybody brings up anything about some political this, some political that, you just get angry and you're bitter and I thought I heard Jesus say, and all men will know you are my disciples by your love. No, for my anger and bitterness towards my culture. That's how people will know I'm godly man. And we are so distracted from keeping pure our one little drop of water that we have. We cannot influence an ocean. But we can influence the drops of water around us. God takes care of the ocean. And who knows, God may, like Daniel, even use our little drops that are just as important, just as powerful as anybody else's little drops of water. And God may even choose to use your influence on other drops of water. Who knows, maybe even to affect and change an ocean. My question is, are you a hammer or are you an anvil? Do you do the hammering, the influencing, or, or do you basically be influenced and you're so angry you just dropped out? Are we back into the 60s? Some of us are going to make love. 
Some of us are going to make war. Some of us are just going to be confused. And some will just stay mad until we get the right president, until we get the right governor, or until we get the right mayor, or we get the right senator, or we... Beloved, what about keeping pure your drop of water? You do have a personal culture here. Are you a thermometer or a thermostat? Remember, a thermometer is simply on the wall. This just simply reflects basically the climate of a room. Everybody's mad, they're mad. And you're just like everybody else. Are you a thermostat that you actually establish the climate, at least for the drops around you? Are you an influencer or an influencee? So here's what I'm saying. Yes, we live in an antagonistic culture. Stop letting it get you down. It is a bad case of normal. It is history. Those who have honored God have always been a remnant. What do you think? What are you thinking? But are you letting it so distract you? Because you're always so angry. Quick to get mad. To, 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 to attack personalities. Therefore, you begin to lose the fact that, no, no, you have a personal culture. You have a powerful drop of water. It's all your own. Are you keeping it pure? Do you even know what your personal culture is? Well, let me remind you of it. Since we're in the Hebrew canon, let's stay there. Take Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Have it tattooed in some appropriate place. Because remember, Micah just summarizes when you get up in the morning, before you have your coffee, before you read your paper or go to your computer and get all set to be angry all day again. Remember what Micah 6 8 says? It summarizes our culture, it tells us three things about our personal culture. Those of us who want to honor God with our lives, with our little drop of water. One, we love justice. We get up and what's on our mind is that, Lord, can I right a wrong today? If I see something with the drops around me and I see something wrong and, Lord, I can do something to make it right, I love justice. And, Lord, this day I just want to make right things that are wrong around me, whatever they might be. Maybe somebody being rude to somebody. Maybe somebody not telling the truth. Maybe somebody lying to a customer. Maybe whatever it is. Lord, today, can I make right something that's wrong? Because first part of my personal drop of water, I love justice. I want to do justice today. Number two, I love kindness. Boy, when I see someone concerned about the well-being of another, doing something that serves and encourages someone else, whether they be a Christian, non-Christian, they be in politics, not in politics, whatever it might be. Can I celebrate that? That I'm known that, you know, you can't figure Daryl's politics out because he just rejoices at kindness no matter who does it. If it's kindness. They do justice. We love kindness. And remember the third one? We humbly walk with our God. Anything we say and do, what drives us is we want to honor the will of God. 
I just want to do what would please God. Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. I'm his disciple. I'm becoming like him. This is the one that the Father from heaven said twice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, when my head hits the pillow, that's, that's what I would love to hear echo from heaven. Daryl, today you did justice. And you celebrated kindness. And Daryl, today you lived and carried out my will. Well done, son. Remember 2 Corinthians 6? God says, yes, I'm your God, but I will be your father, and you will be sons and daughters to me. So he provided for our forgiveness when Jesus Christ died on the cross so we could be adopted from creatures to become actually children of God. And then he placed the Spirit of God within our hearts, giving us desires we never had before. And those desires would be to honor God, not as God, not as Creator, but our Heavenly Father. So he could say, this is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. That's how you keep your drop of water pure. That's how Daniel did. That's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's how they did. And how God's going to use my drop of water, I don't know. I'm not the one that changes an ocean. And I'm not the one that changes a culture. But I do know how to celebrate my personal culture. Beloved, I don't know if you like the Beach Boys or the Beatles. But baby, you're back into the 60s. And we are counterculture. So walk worthy of it. Keep your drop of water pure. You love justice. You love kindness. You just want to be humble before your God. And God will take care of the ocean. Heavenly Father, I would pray that as we've learned this truth from history, we would not be like Belshazzar. What a fool. If he would have just looked at his history... If he would have just studied the life of his father or grandfather, what he would have known about you. Thank you for preserving this history for us. And Lord, to know that you're the God of history, the history in the Bible and the history outside the Bible. What a remarkable thing. At the very moment that you're using this water drop of Daniel at a perverted party would be the very moment that you have brought about all the forces that would bring a change to that culture of Babylon. Lord, you could do it to ours. And I know one day Jesus Christ will return and will do it to ours. Meanwhile, may we be found faithful and pure with our drops. May we influence those drops around us with purity. We ask this in the name of Christ. And God's people said, God bless you and walk worthy. Stop being so angry.